0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, Melsa, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Charlotte Rogan at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. Architect-turned-author Charlotte Rogan made waves on the literary scene with the publication of The Lifeboat, a tense and haunting survival story set at sea at the outset of World War I. Stranded on an overcrowded boat with few provisions and little chance of immediate rescue, survivors of the mysterious sinking of an ocean liner grapple with life and death decisions. Rogan's debut hit numerous bestseller lists and put Rogan in contention for several major literary awards. The Lifeboat has been translated into more than 25 languages and is currently being adapted into a major motion picture produced by and starring Anne Hathaway. Rogan's second novel, now and again, hit shelves in April. Hailed by the Huffington Post as just as harrowing and even more complex, it centers on an unassuming secretary who stumbles across proof of a massive corporate conspiracy.
1: Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. Um, I, uh, this is, believe it or not, only this month I've gotten a smartphone because I, I didn't want to be more connected than I already am. But the thing that put me over the edge and, and actually com, you know, propelled me to, into buying one was that I wanted to be able to listen to the Clubbook podcast in my car. And um, it actually has been terrific. So I, I got my phone and I, I plugged it into my car and it worked like a charm but all of the authors for Club Book were speaking so fast and I thought, oh, I guess that's just the way they do it in Minnesota. Um, And then I realized that the phone has a little button where you can make the playback speed go like one one and a half times or two times. And so then I realized, okay, I can relax. I don't have to um, beat any speed records here. One of the things I noticed when I was listening was how many of these really awesome writers have Minnesota connections or roots and I was trying to think, and I, I really don't, except for one canoe trip that my family took as a kid. And it was one of my, our most memorable family vacations where we left from Ely, Minnesota. My dad was a corporate transfer and we were living in Chicago at the time. And um, he always liked to work. He's, he was a very kind of obsessed with boats. And he liked to fit boats into wherever he could. Which, so it's not really a coincidence that my first novel is called The Lifeboat. Um, I thought that I would talk a little bit about um, the, interp- the interplay between readers, writers, and the text. That's sort of my new theme, is sort of thinking about how all of those things depend on each other, and that novels don't really belong to the writer. They, they actually have a, a journey where they end up belonging to the reader more than they do to the person who wrote them. So I thought that I would start by talking about the author who, you know, me in this instance, and then move on to the books. Um, I didn't always want to be a writer. I wanted to be an architect. And I thought that this would somehow teach me how how the world was put together, you know, what held it up and what made it tick. And that's actually one of the reasons that I write. My primary education was learning, I mean, it was really spent learning that there was one correct answer out there hidden among a host of wrong ones. And I did pretty well in school because I got very good at guessing right. But that also, that, I mean, I think education has gotten a lot better at teaching critical thinking and and creativity, but when I was a kid, that wasn't a huge part of the curriculum. And two of the negatives about that were that, first of all, it set me up to believe in binaries, you know, that the answers were right or wrong, the the world was black or white, people were good or bad, and of course, that's a function of maturity also. But um, when I was in in school, you were not encouraged to think creatively. That was the second negative effect, is that it sort of squeezed the creativity right out of me. And it wasn't until I got to college and I took my first architecture course that I realized there were whole departments of, of people who took creativity very, very seriously. And studying architecture allowed me to put one foot in that world of the imagination, but keep the other one very firmly planted in the world of math and material science. So it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that I started to write. Um, I had taken a leave, I was working at a construction company in New York City, and I had taken a leave of absence because I got sick. And I wasn't, I wasn't very sick. So I thought, well, I can try something new. And it had never occurred to me before to write a novel. But I decided that I was going to write one. And I decided I should take some creative writing classes because I, I really had no idea how you'd go about doing it. So I did. I signed up for a couple. Um, most notably, I took one with a guy named Harold Brodke. He's since deceased. But he was a moody genius and he warned the class right off that people who wanted to be liked could never be writers. Um, And then the merest hint of success would stop a writer in his or her tracks. So over the next 25 years, I wrote five novels and published nothing. So no worries about the pitfalls of success for me. Um, A few years after taking that class, my husband and I became the parents of triplets. And soon after that, he was transferred from New York to Dallas And I think both of those things were good for my writing. I didn't know anyone in Dallas, so that cut way down on the distractions. I mean, of course, I had those pesky little babies, but um, the other thing, though, is that becoming a parent completely focused me. If I got any time to myself at all, I tried not to waste it. And When I hired a babysitter, I would drive out the driveway past my cheerfully waving children, I'd circle the block. And then I'd park in an alley behind my house and sneak through a back gate into a room off the garage where I kept my computer and I'd work there until you know the three hours whatever I'd hired the sitter for and then I'd drive back around uh, with no one the wiser about where I had been for all that time of course I eventually made friends and my children went off to school which gave me bigger chunks of time to myself but I feel kind of bad about this now whenever one of my friends would invite me to lunch or to do some kind of daytime activity, I would make up excuses, this string of excuses of why I couldn't go, and I never said, I didn't think it was a valid excuse to say that I wanted to use that time to write. And um, in fact, I didn't even call myself a writer at all to anyone until just before my first book was published. But I think that I should have. One of, one of the pieces of advice that Broadkey, that creative writing teacher, had told us was that when you sit down at your desk to write, you should imagine one of your literary heroes, you know, someone awesome. I think it's sort of like imagining when you step up to the plate, you're imagining a home run, you know, visualize success. So I'll pass it on to any writers in the group, um, is I think that a writer is just someone who writes. All of that time when I didn't call myself a writer, I never considered not doing it. And I think that writing is something that um, you don't choose it. It chooses you. The other thing that I'll pass on is um, that if you're writing fiction, you need to have a plot. And this might sound obvious to you or to readers of fiction, but for some reason, it was not obvious to me. The thing that really attracted me to writing when I first started out were the words. And I was so admiring of of writers who would write these beautiful sentences. and, And that's what I wanted to do. Um But eventually, I realized that if I was ever going to get anything published, I was probably going to have to learn how to do plot. I find plotting actually pretty hard i, I don't start I think it's because I don't start with a story. I tend to start with a voice that just sort of comes to me, and so the story sort of accumulates as the voice talks to me and I'll start to listen to it and write pieces of the story down. I mean, it's not a Joan of Arc voice, but (laughs) nothing scary, but but I've heard other writers describe it this way too, that the voices just sort of appear to them. But of course, eventually, any story needs to be shaped by what Jonathan Franzen calls deliberate dreaming. I always liked that. Um, And that's where you put a character in a situation and see what they do. But I don't, get to, I don't do that sort of intentional writing until I have a, a large part of, this, of the book already written. Um, and then I'll sort of impose an outline on it and try to arm wrestle the different pieces into shape. And I, I wouldn't even recommend, I think there are two kinds of writers. Um, they're the way people who do it the way I do it. I think they're called seat of the pants writers. And then they are the, the outliners who know their story in advance. And it might change as they go, but I think If I were, if you got to choose which kind you'd be, I'd say do the latter, you know, plan your story out in advance. But for me, it's the writing itself that is how I discover the story. So, um, you know, architecture, um, construction company, writing workshop, triplet babies, moved to Dallas. Now fast forward 17 years, When my children were seniors in high school, I got a call from a a journalist who was writing an article. She was a freelancer writing for the New York Times education section on the challenges for multiples of applying to college. And she wanted to interview my kids, and they were game. And along the course of things, she and I became friends. And she was kind enough to read one of my manuscripts and introduce me to her literary agent, who ended up selling the lifeboat to Little Brown. there was a very funny trip, actually. We took the summer before my kids went off to college, where they had spent, people who have had kids go off to college, you know that's an intense year where they spend a lot of time trying to figure out their own futures. Well, now they were going to turn the laser beam of their attention on mine, because they were convinced that I would be completely devastated when they went off to college. And they kept coming up with different careers for, for me to be once they were gone. And I kept telling them, no, you know, I think I'm going to make something more of my writing. And then, about a year later, lo and behold, I did get a publisher for a novel. So sometimes when I put it that way, it seems kind of magical. In fact, it was. But, um, you know, I announced that I'm going to become a writer, and lo and behold, it happens. But that sort of elides those 20 plus years when I was writing into the void with no success whatsoever. And when I look at the second way, I think any sane person might ask, why? Why would I spend those years you know, doing research and going down that rabbit hole of my imagination and pretending that I'm people that I'm not? And I can only say that um, writing for me is sort of an addictive puzzle, where you try to make a cohesive whole out of a vague inspiration using only words and your imagination. And I think other writers in, in the group will probably recognize that. that um, compulsion. I would say if you're an aspiring writer and, and you, know, you have a plan B, probably go with the plan B because um, writing is not a surefire um, way to make a living. It's not a surefire path towards publication. But it is, if you have to do it, um, it, it can be very satisfying and, and actually fun. So I thought then I would talk now a little bit, that's kind of about me. I would talk a little bit about my two books. Uh, My new novel, which just came out in the spring, is called Now and Again. And Now and Again is, it's told in parallel plot lines. The first one follows the story of a woman named named Maggie Rayburn, and she's a wife, um, secretary, and longtime um, employee of a munitions plant. And life in the small town where she lives, she lives in a small Oklahoma town, is pleasant, predictable, and she assumes secure until she finds proof of a high-level cover-up on her boss's desk, and she impulsively takes it. And this is an act that turns her world, and more importantly, her worldview, completely upside down. Propelled by a desire to do good, but also by a newfound taste for excitement, Maggie starts to see injustice everywhere. And soon her bottom drawer is filled with what she calls evidence. And her town is turned against her, and she has to decide you know what she's gonna do with these documents and you know how much the truth is worth to her. So I thought I'd introduce you to, to the book by just reading a little bit from the beginning. Maggie Rayburn had just come from eating birthday cake in the employees' lunchroom when a document sitting in plain sight on her boss's desk caught her eye. It was one o'clock and a shaft of late winter sun was stabbing through the plate glass window behind the desk, blinding her enough so that at first she wasn't sure exactly what was signified by the thick red border on the document's cover or by the stern capital letters or the string of acronyms and slashes. Curiosity, was it a useful trait or a dangerous one? But who isn't curious, she thought as she lifted the cover and peered inside. Discredit the doctors, she read flood the system with contradictory reports. Footsteps sounded in the corridor, causing a shiver to prickle her neck. She glanced out the window and cocked her head to listen. It was getting brighter out, or no, it wasn't really, but now and then a band of light cut through the pervasive cloud cover and illuminated the stretch of farmland she had been looking at for what seemed like a thousand years. It was gray and frozen now, but in a few more months it would burst with life aided by the ant-like tractors that crawled along the corn rows and the spindly wheel irrigation contraption, and a few months later, the big green harvesting machines. And in the distance, but she didn't have time to think about the distance where the corn gave way to wheat and where a phalanx of oil rigs were drilling through the subshelf of the Arcoma Basin and beyond the oil rigs, Oklahoma City, and beyond that, beyond that, an entire world she had never seen. The footsteps were coming closer, pausing, Surely they belonged to Mr. Winslow, who would have finished up his meeting with the Army brass by now. And anyway, there was never time. There were documents to be typed and filed, telephones to be answered, an outfit to be chosen for the special birthday dinner Lyle was planning for her. In secret, he thought, but Lyle was an open book. The more furtive his movements, the easier it was to guess what he was up to. All of the hours in the day were spoken for. Unless she made time, unless she announced, Thursday evening, you boys are on your own and went to get her nails done or meet up with True and Misty for a girl's night out. But today, something was different. Whatever it was caused Maggie's heart to clench with a dangerous possibility, and before she knew what she was doing, the document was in her hands, and then it was tucked up inside the baggy sweater Lyle and Will had given her that morning for her birthday. Lyle, who had no fashion sense, and Will, who wanted her to be presentable, but not the kind of mother his friends eyed from under the brims of their baseball caps. Where had the years gone? She might as well slap a used up mother sign on her forehead if she was going to wear a sweater like that. But as she stood in a stray shaft of February sunlight, watching the distant oil rigs pump their greasy dollars out of the ground, she wondered if certain seemingly indelible aspects of her life and personality might change. If Lyle might become her accomplice and whatever lay in wait for her as the earth made its lonely way around the sun, and Will spun off into ever farther orbits, and she took another step along the path to becoming, which was something she had read about in a magazine she had bought herself as a birthday treat, just coincidentally the day before. She moved some papers into the blank spot where the document had been before scurrying back to the secretarial bay, and at the end of the day she took it home with her and hid it away in the tall mahogany chest of drawers that had been handed down from her grandmother to her mother, and from her mother to her, not daring to look beyond the cover with its red top secret banner for another week and a half, but now and then catching her own eye in the mirror that sat atop the old chest and seeing there, if not exactly boldness and youth, then not timidity and middle age either. She had never been timid, but maybe she was a little too predictable, or a little too content, a little too willing to be what other people wanted her to be. So you can see Maggie's ready for a change, (laughs) and she gets it. Um, um, As I said, it's only really after a book is finished that I start to think about why I wrote it. And I realized that my motivation as I wrote now and again changed, and um, it changed as I wrote, and it's bound up with the motivations of the characters and also with the themes of the book. The initial impulse, though, came back in 2004 when I read a blog post written by a guy who had decided to quit his job at a munitions plant because he didn't support the war in Iraq. And he reasoned that if everybody followed his example, there couldn't even be a war. And the idea of of one lone individual making a stand or a statement with the idea that he could change global events really stuck with me. And Maggie Rayburn is loosely modeled on that blogger. When I started writing, I would have said I wanted to write a book about war that didn't focus on military conflict. I was more interested in how, um, exploring how the war affects ordinary people like Maggie and the residents of the small Oklahoma town where she lived. But as I got into it, I realized that war kind of a- um, wraps its economic and psychological tendrils around any nation that gets involved in it. But it also has to compete with the other imperatives of our lives, such as making a living, raising our families, and fighting for other worthy causes. And when a war drags on for a decade, um, it becomes kind of a staticky background. I found myself tuning in and out, kind of alternately horrified and oblivious. And I wanted to somehow get at that. Um, Deciding who is going to tell a story is one of the first decisions an author has to make. But for me, it never really feels like a decision. The voices I talked about just appear in my head. My first novel, um, The Lifeboat, was told from a single, somewhat claustrophobic point of view. Um, There, the only thing the reader has access to is what the protagonist, whose name is Grace, either thinks or sees, or thinks she sees. But in Now and Again, I started with Maggie, but other voices kept popping into my head, wanting to be heard. And all of them, it was interesting because in in The Lifeboat if you have read it, you know the character maybe isn't particularly admirable, but in this book all of the characters were trying to do the right thing and they were all trying to find the truth. And one thing I realized and this might sound kind of obvious on the surface, but that the truth is not, you know, it's not one character is not capable of knowing or expressing the truth. But I don't just mean that a single character is unreliable as, um, you know, inherently unreliable as Grace was in The Lifeboat. And I don't even mean that one character isn't able to be everywhere at once, and so you need other characters to fill in missing parts of the story. I started to realize that the the truth is not a single coherent thing. There was a, a Russian philosopher named Mikhail Bakhtin, and he had a nice way of describing how the truth requires a symphony of voices, some of which contradict each other. So it seemed to me that a novel where all the characters are on a quest for truth really needed to be told from multiple viewpoints. Um, as, As you know, I'm sure all of you know, that a point of view character is one where you get inside their heads and you have access to their thoughts and their feelings. By the time I was finished with Now and Again, I had, well, I actually had 13. I ended up cutting one out. I had 12 point of view characters, including Maggie and her husband Lyle, two army officers, a group of soldiers, a priest, a midwife, Maggie and Lyle's teenage son Will, and Will's Hispanic girlfriend. Um, and I started to realize that novel writing is the kind of world building. It's not just the science fiction and the fantasy novels that are built worlds. It's really any novel. And I think that's that also comes from my architectural background, is I'm very interested in structures of books and how. Um, if, you have, if you have a real problem that you're working on in the writing of a book, often you can solve it not by adding a new character or changing the voice of the book. Sometimes it's just a shift in the structure of how you're organizing the chapters or what you've decided to come first. So I'm very interested in that, that structural element of writing. But having so many characters made me very, very nervous. Um, And also, what was I doing writing about soldiers? This seemed like a very sacred trust to me to try to get um, characters right that had life experiences that were so different from my own. And um, so I did a lot of research. And this is another thing that I just love about writing is that it opens a whole world of research to me. I mean, it really informs so much of my reading, not just fictional reading, but nonfiction. So there's a ton of good military writing out there, um, nonfiction and fiction as well. But I also had to step quite far outside my comfort zone. I'm not a journalistic sort. One of the reasons I like writing at home is because I'm not one of those outgoing people who sticks the microphone in somebody's face and asks them how does it feel. <laughs> but I, did, I was able to find um, some soldiers who were willing to talk to me and share their experiences and read sections of the book for me to kind of smoke out mistakes. And that was, that was a very interesting experience for me. But I also realized that fiction, one of the really wonderful things about fiction is that it, it is a vehicle for stepping outside of your own shoes and into someone else's, not just for the writer, but for the reader, of imagining what lives unlike your own can be like and tapping into that common humanity that we all share no matter what our life experiences are. So if you read the book, you'll notice that the chapter's all open with kind of a Greek chorus of peripheral characters, you know, where they just each have a little tiny quote. And um, the conceit is that these characters are, you know, living in the town where Maggie lives, or they're soldiers who have been in the same unit as some of the soldier characters. And they're being interviewed by a journalist who's trying to put together the story of how these stolen documents end up appearing on a website. And I already, the other thing about the, char, the, the chorus is that I think that they sort of serve as a comment on novel writing because, you know, I already had 12 point of view characters. Frankly, why stop there? <laughs> and I started to realize that there are always other points of view. There's always more characters who have their own stories that are kind of um, just, juxtaposed or right next door to the story that I'm telling and that the, art, the, the frame of the novel is really an artificial construction. So that was another motivation for writing was to kind of get that, that world right. Um, as I wrote though, new motivations crept in. For instance, I started to think about what happens to people who really start to pay attention in a very focused and sustained way to the things that are going on around them. Can their lives go on as they did before? And if not, you know, where does their duty lie? And also, do people who are all trying to do good in the world, do they even make interesting characters? I started to think about um, how, in fiction, often baddies are considered to be more interesting characters than goodies. But I started to become interested in people like Maggie and the Soldiers who were all trying to do good in the world. What were their issues and challenges? When I was, um, I never really think about what my book's about till it's done. And when I was trying to figure out what it was done, I came, what it was about... I came upon a really interesting book called, um, by Larissa McFarquhar, it's non non-fiction. It's called Strangers Drowning, and the subtitle is Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Overpowering Urge to Help. And she, she talks about, she really profiles a lot of extreme do-gooders. Um, they, the, the, the title, the main title, Strangers Drowning, comes from, I don't know if you know the work of Peter Singer. He's an ethicist who works at Princeton University. And he talks about a scenario where, let's say, you're walking along and you're dressed in your very best clothes, expensive clothes, and you, come, you pass a child who's drowning in shallow but very muddy water. You can save him with no risk to your own life, but you'll completely ruin your clothes. Would you do it? Well, of course, everyone's going to say, yes, of course I'd do it. And then he asks, well, let's say that you just didn't buy those clothes in the first place and instead you send that money off to some third world country and it could feed a family for a year. Would you do that? And I think we can all agree that the the farther the need is from, from you or from me, the less likely we are to help. Singer in this context talks about something that he envisions as circles of duty that your inner circle of duty is yourself and your family, and then it progresses outward through your community and your state and your nation and the world. And I think that in many cases, paying attention to an outer circle of duty necessarily means we'll neglect an inner one. And with soldiers, that's something that we just expect of them, and we honor them for leaving their families and going off to fight for for the good of all of us. But we're not always so, so, Uh, understanding about other people who go off to to fight for a cause and neglect their family. Well, this is a situation that Maggie finds herself in, and it sets up kind of a moral dilemma for her. How much does she um, fight for the causes that she starts to see in the world around her, and how much does she um, continue to take care of her family at home? Well, after I'd read that 2004 blog post, I wrote a few chapters, and then I put them aside for other projects. And when I finally got back to what eventually became now and again, information was big news. I mean, information, our our idea about information has changed so drastically over the the last, you know, decade, really. So it was 2013, um, WikiLeaks was going strong, Chelsea Manning was being convicted of espionage for disclosing, I think it was three quarters of a million classified and sensitive documents. And Edward Snowden was about to open his Pandora's box of secrets about the NSA. And these developments made me start to think about information very differently. And they clearly affected the course of the book. In my view, information is kind of a paradox. As we've all had the experience, probably multiple times a day, of having to make a decision based on partial and maybe unreliable information. But at the same time, in this day and age, information is absolutely overwhelming, and it's often tempting just to tune out altogether. So another motivation was for writing was to explore how people live coherent and ethical lives in this age of overwhelming information. And the thing that strikes me now as I think about it, how as I wrote, all of these things were happening in the world around me, and I was reacting to them in the novel, like in the world of the novel. And it was the strangest experience I've ever had. As, um, I felt like I was almost like a filter for world events. And then um, I'd go down this rabbit hole, of the, and I was living in Oklahoma, or I was with the soldiers in Iraq. And it was just a very strange thing. Um, but in any case, it was, it was exhausting, but it was kind of exhilarating too. Um, they often, so that's, that's talking about now and again, they often say that a writer's, I've heard this multiple times, that a writer's current novel is a reaction against her last one. So where now and again is told from multiple perspectives and it takes the world as its canvas, the lifeboat is told by a single um, you know, narrator, somewhat unreliable narrator, and it's set in a seven by 23 foot boat. And where now and again is set in the present day, the lifeboat was set 100 years ago just um, just after the sinking of the Titanic. But the similarity, I think, is that both books are about moral dilemmas. And those are something that have always interested me. I think the notion of a lifeboat is also interesting because it implies both safety and peril. You're in the lifeboat because it's a refuge in a perilous sea. But eventually, the lifeboat itself can become the source of peril. I guess it's kind of the same sort of paradox as the idea of fighting for peace, or the war, a war to end all wars. So the tragedy of the Titanic was that if there were not enough lifeboats for everyone, but if you made it into one of them, you were rescued about four to six hours later. And the characters in my lifeboat novel are not quite so lucky. Um, so you might almost say that my novel picks up where the story of the t- Titanic left off, you find out in the first chapter that Grace um, and two other survivors are later put on trial for things that happen in the boat, and Grace's attorneys su- suggest she write her story down as part of her defense, and the result is a first-person day-by-day account as she recollects the events of the lifeboat, and that kind of takes up the main, the main portion of the book. And I thought I'd just introduce you to the lifeboat by reading also from the first chapter. So this is the prologue. Today I shocked the lawyers, and it surprised me the effect I could have on them. A thunderstorm arose as we were leaving the court for lunch. They dashed for cover under the awning of a nearby shop to save their suits from getting wet, while I stood in the street and opened my mouth to it, transported back and seeing again that other rain as it came at us in gray sheets. I had lived through that downpour, but the moment in the street was my first notion that I could live it again, that I could be immersed in it, that it could again be the tenth day in the lifeboat when it began to rain. The rain had been cold, but we welcomed it. At first it had been no more than a teasing mist, but as the day progressed, it began to come down in earnest. We held our faces up to it, mouths open, drenching our swollen tongues. Mary Ann could not or would not part her lips, either to drink or to speak. She was a woman of my age. Hannah, who was only a little older, slapped her heart and said, open your mouth or I'll open it for you. Then she grabbed Marianne and pinched her nostrils until she was forced to gasp for air. The two of them sat for a long time in a sort of violent embrace while Hannah held Marianne's jaws open, allowing the gray and saving rain to enter her drop by drop. Come, come, said Mr. Reichman, who is the head of the little band of lawyers hired by my mother-in-law, not because she cares one jot about what happens to me, but because she thinks it will reflect badly on the family if I am convicted. Mr. Reichman and his associates were calling to me from the sidewalk, but I pretended not to hear them. It made me very angry not to be heard, or rather not to be heeded, which is a different and far more insulting thing, I imagine, to those used to speaking from podiums, to those who regularly have the attention of judges and juries and people sworn to truth or silence and whose freedom hangs on the particular truth they choose to tell. When I finally wrenched myself away and joined them, shivering and drenched to the bone but smiling to myself, glad to have discovered the small freedom of my imagination, they asked, what kind of trick was that? Whatever were you doing, Grace? Have you gone mad? Mr. Glover, who was the nicest of the three, put his coat around my dripping shoulders, but soon the fine silk lining was soaked through and probably ruined. And while I was touched that Mr. Glover had offered me his coat, I would much rather it had been the coat of the handsome, heavy-set William Reichman that had been ruined in the rain. I was thirsty, I said, and I was thirsty still. But the restaurant is just there. It's less than a block away. You can have any sort of drink you like in a minute or two, said Mr. Glover, with the other, and while the others pointed and made encouraging noises. But I was thirsty for rain and salt water, for the whole boundless ocean of it that's very funny i said laughing to think that i was free to choose my drink when a drink of any sort wasn't something i wanted i had spent the previous two weeks in prison and i was only free pending the outcome of a proceeding that was now in progress unable to restrain my laughter which kept laughing at my insides and bursting out of me like gigantic waves i was not allowed to accompany the lawyers into the dining room but had to have my meal brought to me in the cloak room where a wary clerk perched vigilantly on a stool in the corner as I pecked at my sandwich. We sat there like two birds and I giggled to myself until my sides ached and I thought I might be sick. Well, said Mr. Reichman when the lawyers rejoined me after the meal, we've been discussing this thing and an insanity for defense doesn't seem so far-fetched after all. The idea that I had a mental disorder filled them with happy optimism. Where before lunch they had been nervous and pessimistic, now they lit cigarettes and congratulated one another on cases I knew nothing about. I don't know who had the idea, whether it was Glover or Reichman or even that mousy Liggett, that I should try to recreate the events of those 21 days and that the resulting diary might be entered as some kind of an exonerating exhibit. In that case, we'd better present her as sane or the whole thing will be discounted, said Mr. Liggett, tentatively, as if he were speaking out of turn. I suppose you're right, agreed Mr. Reichman, stroking his long chin. Let's see what she comes up with before we decide. They laughed and poked the air with their cigarettes and talked about me as if I weren't there as we walked back to the courthouse where, along with two other women named Hannah West and Ursula Grant, I was to stand trial for my life. I was 22 years old, I had been married for 10 weeks and a widow for six. So then the rest of the book is, uh, most of the rest of the book is her putting, trying to remember what happened. Um. The inspiration for The Lifeboat came uh, from my husband's old criminal law text. It was on the top shelf of our library, and I found it one day, and I took it down um, and thought I'd look at it. And I was expecting some dry, legal tome. But two things about that book completely fascinated me. One of them was how the law tries to tell a story in a way that allows us to judge it, to decide who's innocent, who's guilty and how the guilty should be punished. But I wanted to tell a story in a way that shows how hard it is to judge people for things that we've never never experienced, certainly, but maybe never even thought about. The other thing that fascinated me about the text were the the cases themselves. And there were two cases in there about shipwrecked sailors who were later put on trial after being rescued. And in the first case, um, it was an 1841 case called the United States versus Holmes. And Holmes was a ship's mate who found himself, along with 40 other people, in a leaky and overcrowded lifeboat after their ship had been hit by an iceberg off the coast of Newfoundland. And Holmes handled the increasingly desperate situation by tossing about a dozen people overboard. The very next day, they were picked up by a passing ship. And when they returned to civilization, all the other um, survivors scattered and left Holmes there alone to be charged with murder. Um, And the the defense held, though, that in situations of of necessity, the law of society ceases to operate, and you're instead left with what they called natural law, or the law of self-preservation. And there was something also then, back then, called the custom of the sea. And this was an unwritten code of conduct that held, among other things, that the captain should be the last one to leave a sinking ship, the women and children should be saved first, and that the concept of necessity made it perfectly acceptable to kill other people in order to survive so long as um, you you chose your victims fairly. Um, The the second case was, Holmes was convicted not because he tossed the people out of the boat, but because he hadn't uh, had a lottery to choose them fairly. The second case was a British case, 1884, Regina versus Dudley and Stevens, And there, the prosecution argued that necessity didn't obtain because castaways could never know when or if they'd be rescued. If they were rescued the next day, as it happened in the Holmes case, the killing others wasn't necessary. And if they weren't rescued at all, then killing others would do no good. So the court agreed that that since you could never know from one minute to the next when you might be rescued, um, you could never know if a killing would really be necessary. So just, um, this is a precedent that remains enforced today, in case you're ever in a position where you need to know that. Um, and that's the reason that it was in the criminal law book, because it was you know, sort of a precedent setting, um, two precedent setting cases. But this left me with a question, was the only moral course of action for the people in the lifeboat to just quietly, passively die? Were you not allowed to you know, scratch and claw to save your life? That's the question that haunted me, and that's really why I wrote the book. I had one other source of inspiration, which is a lot more personal, and that's that I grew up in a family of of sailors. And my dad was one of those somewhat tyrannical sea captains. I would say this in front of him, um, that if you didn't understand an order on the boat, he just said it a little more forcefully. We children would be lured on to this family sailboat, and you know, sometimes we actually did this, but they'd always say, yeah, we're going to cruise to this far offshore, you know, this beach that we like, and we're going to cook marshmallows and have a campfire and all this. But what my dad really liked to do was to race, race sailboats, and if there wasn't a formal race that we were going on, he would just find other boats to race with, and this was an all-hands-on-deck experience. Um, our family was very competitive, and it went without saying that no matter what the activity, it was important to win. So my sister and I, um, I have uh, three siblings, two of them older. My younger sister and I were the, the youngest, and for most of these these outings, we were too little to be of any use whatsoever. And it was our job merely to not fall overboard and to stay out of the way. Um, as often as not, we hit bad weather and it rained. and um, then there was like it was unclear of us what to do because if you went down in the little cabin, which is really cute and cozy, but in bad weather you got horribly seasick down there. So she and I would just hunker down in our little slickers, find a corner of the deck, and just hope for the best. And it was those, <laughs> it was those experiences of. Um, you know, being surrounded by people who were stronger than I was and being really at the mercy of the elements that allowed me to imagine what those weeks in the lifeboat must have been like for Grace and the other survivors. Um, at another early author event, um, one of my first ones, I was talking to a book group and it was made up of members of the Little Brown Sales Force. And there was a woman named Karen, and she was pretty high up in the company, and so anything she said, everybody listened to with rapt attention. And Karen brought up these two sisters who are characters in my lifeboat book, and they fall out of the boat one night, and they disappear. And Karen kept coming back to them. And truly, they're mentioned three times in the whole book. I mean, they're really unimportant. And she kept coming back to them, and she wanted to know who they were and what happened to them. Did they just fall out of the boat? Did they commit suicide? Or were they pushed? And I kept telling her I didn't know. And it was really just again and again asking about those sisters. And so I got, th- got through the event and, and I went to bed that night. In the middle of the night I wake up and I realize those were my sister and me <laughs> and we were not survivors. And I think that anecdote is kind of interesting um, comment on writing in that one, one thing it says about writing is that there is a very subtle interplay between the author's experiences and what comes out on the page. The other thing is that the author doesn't always know what that is. You know, you You're not completely in control of your material. And the third is that the reader brings something very important to the book. You know, They have insights about your book that you have not had. So this brings me to the third and, and last part of my talk. Um, and that's, this is something that I've been very interested in recently. And uh, another of the podcasts I've been listening to has been a series on literary theory, which is a lot of it I don't understand. It gets very heady and intellectual, but there's some very interesting things about almost about the history of reading that um, I'll I'll share with you. The word author comes from the same root as authority. We can all probably agree on that. A word that I would say was invented with nonfiction writers in mind. But in, in any case, in the early days of literature, even fiction writers were granted this kind of inflated importance Um, and thought to be completely in control of the text. And because in this view the author was considered to be completely in control of the meaning of the text, the meaning was also thought to be something fixed and discoverable. Writing was thought to be good if that meaning was clear and it was bad if you had to struggle to understand it. Well that view has been disrupted over time so that today we have a very different idea about um, the, the relationship between authors and texts than we once had. Starting with René Descartes back in the 17th century, he's the I think therefore I am philosopher. A gap opened up between the, what the, the mind and the things the mind thinks about. And so so we, by the 20th century, most fields of intellectual inquiry were we're shot through with this very strong thread of skepticism about what a person can know and how he or she can know it. And four historical figures contributed to this trend. Marx contributed the idea that social, economic, and historical um, forces determine what a person thinks, that you're kind of a product of your moment in time and your circumstances. Nietzsche contributed the idea that language necessarily distorts truth and Freud developed the idea that of the unconscious, that we, we don't know a large part of what motivates us. And then Darwin's work on evolution led to the, the idea that cognition is biologically determined, which of course had implications for how we think about free will. Well, by the 1960s and the Vietnam War, authority came under further attack. There were the student uprisings, the burning of draft cards, and in the midst of all this, um, a literary uh, critic and linguist named Roland Barthes, he was a French guy, wrote an an essay called The Death of the Author. And in that he argued that the interpretation of a text should not take the author's intentions or biography into account at all. So anything that I've said here tonight you can totally disregard. Um, So moving the author to the sidelines through the spotlight on the text and the reader And those those are the three elements that are necessary for literature, the the author, the text, and the reader. So now we can put the author to the side. And as for the text, um, critics and writers started to see how words could either facilitate conveying meaning or or kind of interrupt that conveying of meaning, meaning. And there was an interest in how those formal devices of literature, like metaphor or the particular sounds of the words that are used, could defamiliarize the familiar. Um, Wallace Stevens had a nice way of putting it, saying that the purpose of poetry is to make the visible a little hard to see. In addition, there was research going on into linguistics and semiotics, which is the study of signs, and it led to the increasing understanding that words and symbols are not transparent packets of unambiguous meaning, that they come with an array of connotations, and they're often, how a word is interpreted is, is, is more dependent on the, um, the background and the experiences of the reader than, on, than, than the writer. So all of this worked to transfer a lot of the responsibility for the meaning of the text to the reader. Um, and by the 20th century, p- people were also realizing that writing included gaps that are filled in by the reader. And it was precisely those gaps in the writing that most engaged a reader's imagination. If there were too many gaps, um, like Finnegan's Wake, you know, we struggle to understand it and maybe we're a little confused, but if if there are too few and the writing's too explicit, we're a little bit bored. So one of the questions I get about the lifeboat is, what what did Grace do after the end of the book? And I used to say, um, well, she's a made-up character, she didn't do anything. And then I realized, after talking to a lot of readers, that the whole fact that Grace had stayed with them and they wanted to know, was, you know, it it meant that, you know, they had they had kind of made the book their own in a way, and um, I think that's the holy grail for an author, frankly, is to have people want to know what happened to the characters afterward. So I now take it as an incredible compliment (laughs) if anyone asks me. I've talked to a lot of readers over the last five years, and I've realized, too, though, that there is kind of a a big variety of tolerance for ambiguity. Some people want everything wrapped up by the end of the book, and some people are very happy to take on that role of finishing it for themselves. So I came to see the little gaps. I tend to like ambiguity, and there is ambiguity in my writing. And I tend to see those now as doors through which the reader can kind of enter the text and fill in certain things for themselves. Um, one, one interesting thing that I, I was listening on NPR about, a, a, they were interviewing a guy who did cover art. And he said that whenever he's trying to portray a, you know, a character on the cover, he'll look through the text for clues of how that character looks. And he says he's astonished of how many books there really aren't that many clues. And yet, the reader comes away with a pretty strong idea of what the character looks like. And so that's the reader filling in one of those gaps. Um, There's also um, an interesting concept of of accumulated readings. You read something differently if you read it a second time, or if you hear someone talk about it, or if you've read um, writing, you know, critical writing about it. With 2,000 years of, you know, and millions of pages written about it, the Bible is kind of the ultimate example of this. But accumulated readings affect any, any piece of literature that, that's read by, by others. And so I guess the upshot of this is that a novel, in my view, is not a fixed thing. It changes over time, and its fate is, after a while, is not, is no longer in the hands of the writer, but it's, it's in the hands of the reader. It's the reader who keeps the text alive. A book also has a more communal life, and the, the very fact that we're all here today speaks to that. But you also think about how books are used in schools. They're not as objects with closed covers or an end in themselves, but they're really a beginning of a discussion. And this discussion might lead very far afield from the actual text of the book or the interests of the writer. And the discussion in the end might ha- end up having more to do with the interests of the reader than with the writer. Um, so I think you know, Club Book, as I said, is a, a very good example of this, but also all of the other book clubs and library book clubs and discussion groups around the country. So um, I, I just love the way a book can bring together people who would never otherwise talk to each other.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Charlotte Rogan and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member asking if Rogan's character Meg surprised her at all during the writing process.
1: It's completely a surprise to me. And that's where I think it's, um, you know, I don't write in a linear fashion. I discover the story through the character and by writing about her, or him, or whoever it is. Um, it's a very inefficient way to write. I, I end up throwing away a lot. Or then thinking, oh my gosh, I really like this part and I really like this part, but they have nothing to do with each other. And so then you have to make tough choices. But I think. You know, one thing you have to get good at, um, you have to become your own editor, and if you fall in love with your words too much, you won't get rid of the things that you have to get rid of, and that that is a danger.
0: This question asker inquires how many times Rogan found herself revising her novel.
1: Oh gosh, different parts, different amounts, but there's one scene in there, which is an an IED scene. It's early on in the book where soldiers are encountering an IED, and oh my gosh, I thought, what am I doing writing this? I don't know anything about it. And I wrote it probably 40 times. And I actually did get some expert help on it, and I did a ton of research about, you know, hand grenades, how the bombs are actually made. I mean, it was I'm probably on some terrorist watch list now because of all of the, <laughs> all of the sites that I visited. But um, so that would be an extreme example of how much I reworked something, but it's anywhere between, probably. I mean, you, a book is finished many times, and this is another thing. You get it to the point where you might have a trusted reader read it. Then you get it to the point where it's ready to send to your agent. Then you get it to the point where he thinks it's ready to send to your editor. Then you get your editing memo from her, and um, you, know, you go through all of that, maybe a couple rounds. So it's finished, it's finished many times. So even after you think it's finished, there's probably another you know, five or six revisions And then there are the copy editors, the grammar geniuses who know everything about hyphenation and spelling.
0: Another audience member asks how long it took to write The Lifeboat, with Rogan's non-linear writing process.
1: The Lifeboat, and now The Lifeboat, I I still had kids at home when I was writing it, but I would say, I hate to say it, The Lifeboat probably took me 10 years. I mean, that's a long time, isn't it? now and again was probably more like four. Um, not counting, I mean, I, I did those couple of chapters way back in 2004, but between, you know, when I really got going on it, 2012 to 2013, so what's it now, 2016, so if you add it all up, it's probably about four years. Um, you know, they take a long time, I, the, and believe it or not, one of them's, you know, quote unquote, a historical novel, The Lifeboat, and the other's set in present day, but the more research intensive one was, the now and again, the more current one. That one was a lot of research.
0: Our next question is about how Rogan structures her chapters.
1: I have so many point of view characters that each, like chapter six, that alternates between chapter one is a Maggie chapter, chapter two is the soldier um, point of view. But I had so many point of view, points of view within each chapter, like with the, the the plot line that follows Maggie, there is, you know, maybe six different people who speak. So each one, each chapter changed. You know, I, it's, it's, so 6.1 might be from Maggie's point of view and 6.2 might be her husband Lyle's point of view. And it was my method for keeping track of them when I was writing. But they ended up making sense because there's a lot in there kind of about the, of this website that happens. And it almost has that little bit of a computer edge to it um, and I think also this this whole information age did affect the the, the again the structure of the book as well as um, you know the content of the book, not just in the 6.0 6.1 chapter headings, but also in. You know, the chapters are kind of short. I mean, people do have shorter attention spans now. They're, they're kind of, you know, I just think that the world around you, you don't know what's affecting you. You'd never be able to point to, oh, yes, I'm making these chapters short because I know people have shorter attention spans. It just kind of comes through you and comes out that way. So sort of interesting.
0: This audience member asks how long Rogan spends writing each day.
1: That's a good question. It depends what I'm doing. Certain things, like the creative first draft part is, for me, I can do maybe an hour or an hour and a half of two of that. I mean, it's that's the hardest for me, and it's kind of the most draining. But if you're doing research, like you can do research for you know a whole day, and if it's copy editing type stuff, um, where it's just going and making corrections on things like grammar related, like I could do 10 hours of that. So it really, Depends. Or if I'm really cooking, like I just have a roll, then I might spend my 10 hours a day. And then other days, I'll just force myself to do an hour and a half, and then don't have a lot of errands today, and race off, and have any excuse that I can come up with. But I do try to see it as a job. I do try to get up, and then I go to write. And I see how long I can go. But I try to do it first, so whatever else happens that day, at least I've gotten some hours. Now, when the kids were little, it wasn't like that you know, when anyone who has kids at home, you just fit in when you can. But now, now I don't, and so I do try to treat it like a job. It, it can be all-consuming, but it's also, um, I don't know, for me, I, I think there probably are people who can just work longer hours on that creative stuff, though for me, I just, I just run out. But you find you're working on it even when you're not working on it. It's like any problem, you'll wake up in the night with ideas and, you'll, th- and you'll, get, you'll write them down because you don't remember them. Um, but so or I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's always kind of with me, but I'm not always actively working on it. But if you don't write for, let's say, you go away for a couple of weeks and you come back, it's hard to get, you don't have an idea in your head. You kind of think, I'll never think of anything. It's like anything else. As you're working, it's, it comes. You have to be there, though, at your desk or wherever you work.
0: This question is about how sensitive Rogan is to media and external influences. Do other images, books, or movies, like the existing Lifeboat film, influence her and her work?
1: Yeah, no, and that that is a good question, and I have never seen the Lifeboat movie, and I, someone gave it to me when the book came out, and I'm going to watch it someday, but I knew it existed, but I was not going to watch it because I thought it would influence me too much. You have to protect yourself from certain of those influences if they're too close. I did a lot of research on nonfiction, Titanic-type stuff, but I didn't want to read any fictional accounts um, because I thought that that would, you know, just muddy the waters, to, to point a phrase. Um, I would say also when I'm really working, there's certain kinds of things I don't wanna read because it interferes with the, my, the voices that I want to encourage. For instance, I wouldn't read like a really kind of popular non-literary book because I want, I want to be encouraging myself to think in more literary ways even though I might really enjoy that book if I wasn't working really hard. But it, but it does affect, I, I heard someone else on the radio at one point who was, did some kind of writing for the day job, but also was a poet. And they said, oh, does this really help with your poetry? He says, absolutely not. You know, it gets you in a whole different head. And um, so I try to expose myself to the influence that will encourage what I want to encourage and protect myself from the other
0: stuff. This next question is about what Rogan plans to do with the three unpublished novels she wrote before The Lifeboat.
1: You know, it's funny. There's one that I had sent to my agent because I thought it had possibilities. I really was serious that there's two of them, there's no plot. So like, you know, I would have to so rework those to make them marketable that I probably never will. There's one that I think has possibilities. But every time I think, okay, I'm done with this. Let me take that one back out. I have another idea that's more pressing to me. You have to be, you have to love your idea and you have to be on fire for it because you spend four to 10 years with it. And so the other, I'll just have something that is just a little more, um, I'm just a little more crazy about than that one because that one's a little cold to me now. I think I could get it back, I just haven't. So, you know, it's always in my mind, but I don't know.
0: The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Rogan has played a big part of the film adaptation of The Lifeboat.
1: No, not a part at all. Um, It was interesting though, uh, Anne Hathaway though kind of inconveniently had a baby and so they've kind of (laughs) they've um, kind of pushed it back a little bit. It seems to still be going but Early on, I guess Anne Hathaway read The Lifeboat and liked it. She got in, um, sent it to a screenwriter, a guy named Bill Broyles, who wrote the screenplay for um, Castaway and Apollo 13. I know there's some, a cup of Jarhead. So in any case, he liked it too, and so they, they shopped it around and got two studios involved, um, Focus Features, which is in California, and working title which is British. And so they have bought the option for this and they've extended their option now because it's kind of taken a while because of Anne Hathaway's inconvenient foray into motherhood. Um, but, but apparently it's still going, it just hasn't, hasn't you know, it's, it's we'll, we'll see. But they did call me, like when Bill Broyles was writing the screenplay, he called me because it's very interesting the difference between making something very explicit. For instance, when I was saying how you, know, you, don't really, you can use your imagination how the characters look, or you use your imagination about where they're sitting in the boat. Well, he has to actually know. And so he wanted to talk through a couple of the scenes with me of you know, what my vision for them had been so that he could make it more explicit. So that was kind of kind of fun. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not involved. I think there's some people who are very possessive about their books, even after they're gone, and they want to be, have a lot of creative control over what happens to them next. And I, I kind of see them as gone. Um, I, I don't, you know, if I, if the movie's terrible, I'll probably think, oh, rats, I wish it was better, but I, I kind of um, don't feel personally um, protective of it anymore. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. I really appreciate it and um, enjoy the golfing.
0: That wraps up our Carver County Library Chan Chanhassen event with Charlotte Rogan. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Chitra Banerjee Deva Karuni at 7 p.m. Wednesday, October 12th at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. American Book Award winner Chitra Banerjee Deva Karuni is a master of many different media and genres. Her newest novel, Before We Visit the Goddess, is set in India and Texas. It charted high on bestseller lists in both the U.S. and India. Meet Chitra Banerjee Diva Karooni, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.